If you have a Bible, and I hope you do, and if not, there's possibly a Bible in front of you, and the church in the chair in front of you. But I'd like to have you turn, if you will, to John chapter 16. John chapter 16. I uh, want to say that I, I make no apologies for the, the few number of verses I have here for today. Uh, I wanted to actually to finish the whole chapter today, uh, but the Lord impressed upon my heart something of, of great value and importance for us in this short section that uh, Jesus, of course, is continuing on in his discourse to his disciples as they're headed to to the Garden of Gethsemane that night of the Passover supper and uh, getting closer to that garden. And of course, what is after the garden is the, is the cross. Uh, and, and so uh, Jesus has been preparing his disciples for uh, the ministry that is going to be ahead for them after the resurrection, after the ascension. But he's also preparing them for the immediate uh, issues that are going to be taking place when he is taken, uh, arrested, uh, tried, unjustly, beaten, and then of course crucified. So Jesus had spoken about the joy of his resurrection in our previous study. And now he says this in verse 23. <clears throat> Excuse me. And in that day, you shall ask me nothing. Verily, verily, I say unto you, whatsoever you shall ask the Father in my name, he will give it you. Hitherto have you asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you shall receive that your joy may be full. These things have I spoken unto you in Proverbs, but the time cometh when I shall no more speak unto you in Proverbs. But I shall show you plainly of the Father. At that day you shall ask in my name, and I say not unto you that I will pray the Father for you, for the Father himself loveth you, because you have loved me, and have believed that I came out from God. Shall we pray? Our Father and our God, we come now to your word, and we pray that you would anoint us and bless us with your Holy Spirit. Father, I believe strongly that this particular lesson in prayer is what we all need to hear uh, in light of uh, the uh, very context of this passage. It should stir our hearts, Lord, to want more of you and to seek more of you in our everyday walk, in our everyday life with our every breath and with our every step. Lord, fulfill your joy in us today, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I'm sure that most of you are familiar with the old hymn that is entitled, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. It was written in 1855 by Joseph M. Scriven. And in many hymnals, and even when you look the song up on the internet, the song is placed in the category of friendship. And rightly so. 
For it does imply the friendship that we have with Jesus and he with us. But when you read the four verses of this hymn, it becomes apparent that it is more about prayer than any other subject. Consider, if you will, what a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Have we trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? We should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Can we find a friend so faithful who will all our sorrows share? Jesus knows our every weakness. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Are we weak and heavy laden? Cumbered with a load of care? Precious Savior, still our refuge. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Do thy friends despise, forsake thee? Take it to the Lord in prayer. In his arms he'll take and shield thee. Thou will find a solace there. Blessed Savior, thou hast promised thou wilt all our burdens bear. May we ever, Lord, be bringing all to thee in earnest prayer. Soon, in glory bright, unclouded, there will be no need for prayer. Rapture, praise, and endless worship will be our sweet portion there. I think you all would agree with me that prayer is the central theme of that wonderful, wonderful song. Now Jesus had just mentioned to his disciples that their hearts were already sorrowful in knowing of the Lord's departure from this earth to the Father. But he tells them that he would see them shortly and their, and their hearts would rejoice. Now remember, he's telling them, your hearts are going to rejoice. Even though they have yet to understand that fully. And that joy could not be taken from them. And of course, he spoke to them about the joy of his resurrection. That resurrection that would give them open access into God's presence. And maybe they weren't quite aware of that, but, but there is a glorious promise in all of this. And the promise is an open door into God's presence. An open door into God's presence. Jesus said... In that day, in other words, after his resurrection, there would be no need to ask him anything. Which doesn't mean that we cannot ask him, only that we do not have to ask him. And here's why. Because of what Jesus came to do on the cross, in shedding his blood, in dying, in being buried and rising from the dead, the believer can now walk right into the Father's presence. This is what Jesus is telling his disciples. That is the open door into God's presence. 
What we need to remember is that when the temple curtain was torn in two, that is what made the access possible. Take, for instance, in Matthew 27, verses 50 through 53. Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. Which means, at that moment, with his last breath and with his last statement, he died. And behold, Matthew goes on to record, behold, the veil of the temple, the curtain in the temple was rent in twain, which means it was torn in two from the top to the bottom. There wasn't anyone there, no no matter how big the group may have been, to have torn that veil from the bottom to the top because that's the only way they could have done it. The veil was nearly two feet thick. It was as if God himself reached down and took like a a big New York City uh, uh, phone book, I don't even know if phone books exist anymore, but took a phone book and ripped it right in two. And what happened then? The earth did quake and the rocks rent. In other words, the rocks were broken and and torn. And the graves were opened and many bodies of the saints which slept arose and came out of the graves after his resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared unto many. Paul in Hebrews 9 verses 2 and 3 writes about the tabernacle having a veil referring to two veils. He says, For there was a tabernacle made, the first, speaking of the veil, wherein was the candlestick and the the table and the showbread, or actually the the first being the room, which we we would know as the holy place, the sanctuary, where the candlestick, where the menorah and the table uh, and, and the showbread were. But then he says, And after the second veil, The second veil is the reference to this particular veil that keeps people out of the holiest of all. The holy of holies. And after the second veil, the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all. And it was given to Moses to put into the tabernacle in the wilderness. But it also would then translate into a a larger, more permanent curtain in the temple in Jerusalem which Solomon built. And he refers to that. And I I mention it because of the importance of its its reference. You go back to Hebrews chapter 4, and Paul speaks of the uh, priesthood of Jesus. Because only a high priest from the Aaronic priesthood could enter into that, that holy place, the most holy place, to offer sacrifices for the people there. Only one, the high priest. But we're told in Hebrews 4, verses 14 through 16, seeing then that we have a great high priest. And by the way, our, our great high priest isn't of the order of Aaron, isn't a Levite. He's actually of the house of Judah. And this is what establishes a new and living way for us. Our great high priest is Jesus. 
And he says, seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. The Aaronic priesthood, the, the great, or I should say the high priest of the Aaronic priesthood, had, had to offer uh, sacrifices for himself first before he could enter into that room. Jesus didn't have to because he was without sin. And in verse 16 it says, Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And what he's telling us here is that because of the access that Jesus made through his body and through his blood, we can come now ourselves into the most holy place. And so in Hebrews chapter 10 then, in verses 19 through 22, it says, Having therefore, brethren, boldness, that same boldness, that same confidence to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus by a new and living way which he has consecrated or sanctified for us through the veil. What veil is that? The veil, that is to say, his flesh. In essence, his flesh was rent from top to bottom for us. And having a high priest over the house of God, which he was also, by the way, Think about all the things that Jesus was on our behalf. By being on the cross, he was the altar of sacrifice. By being on the cross, he was the sacrifice. By being on the cross, he was the veil. By being on the cross, he was the veil that was torn. By being on the cross, he was the one who shed his very blood for the forgiveness of our sins. And by dying on the cross... He opened the way for us to come to the Father. And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, full of, in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And so access was made to the Father through that open door. And whatever the believer asks the Father in the name and the authority of Jesus, he will give it to the believer. But the crucial point in this is that our approach to the Father must be in Jesus' name. It must be in Jesus' name. Before Jesus, men, specifically the, the Jewish people, had always asked God for things directly, but no more. As already seen in the book of Hebrews, the resurrection instituted a new and living way into God's presence, approaching the Father through the Son, approaching the Father through Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah, believing that the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ covers us. By asking the Lord to accept our faith in Christ as righteousness and by thanking God for Jesus, his great love and sacrifice for us. So now when we go back to the things that Jesus had already mentioned to his disciples, for example, in John 14, verses 13 and 14, and whatsoever you shall ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you shall ask anything in my name, I will do it. Or in John chapter 15, verse 16, when he says, you have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained you that you should go and bring forth fruit. And that your fruit should remain. And notice this, that whatsoever you shall ask of the Father in my name, he may give it you. 
And all of that because of what Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5.21. For he has made him, Jesus, to be sin for us who knew no sin. That we might be made the righteousness of God in him. A new and living way. Folks, we need to understand this about our position in Christ. About where we are in the body of Christ. We need to understand these things. And the way it's brought to our greater understanding is by understanding that this central theme of this little passage is prayer. Is prayer. Consider again, if you will, verses 23 and 24 of our text, John 16. And in that day, Jesus said, you shall ask me nothing. Verily, verily, I say unto you, Whatsoever you shall ask the Father in my name, he will give it you. Hitherto have you asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you shall receive that your joy may be full. There's two asks there. And it is of great significance that the text uses actually two different Greek words for the word ask. Now, the Greek language is, is, is very significant for our understanding of, of all the things that Jesus has, has been teaching us and the apostles teach us, you know, through the, uh, the epistles, the, the, the letters that are written to the church, the, the more doctrinal letters that are given to us. But uh, uh, the, the Greek language is great. I mean, you know, in the English language, we have one word, ask, right? And, and we think that it means the same thing all the time. And for the most part, it does. But then we have words like love, and we, you know, we, we have this one word, love, and, and we use that word because we love our wife, or we love our husband, or we love our family, we love our children, and, and we, love our, our, we love hot dogs, too. I mean, we love tacos. And we, what we really mean is we like those things a lot, but, you know, we use the word love. Oh, I just love those things. <laughs> In the Greek language, we have four words for love. To make it very clear what each one means and how they're represented in the scripture. So here we have one word, ask. But Jesus actually uses two different Greek words. Now, that word ask could be used somewhat interchangeably, but not here. The word used in verse, verses 19, 23a, where, where we are today, uh, the verse phrase of verse 23 and the second phrase of verse 26 is the word erotao in the, in the Greek. You don't have to remember all the Greek words I give you, but that's, you know, I just want you to see the difference of the words. Uh, the, the first word that's used is erotao, which means to ask a question. It's very simple, to ask a question or to ask a request. It is the word that is used when someone makes a request of a person that is equal to them uh, or anybody that we need to ask for something. Uh, we're equal, you know, human beings. Okay, so we're that equal. But the word ask in verse 23, second part of 23, where Jesus said, whatsoever you shall ask the Father in my name, he will give it you. That is a different word. And in verse 24, it's used there. And in verse 26a, and it's the word etau or I'm sorry, eteo, which means to ask or request of a superior. To ask or request of someone who is higher in stature than you. An inferior to a superior, in other words. 
And certainly this is what he is saying to his disciples there. Whatsoever you shall ask the Father, who is superior to all, in my name, he will give it He will give it you. So this particular word was never used, by the way, it was never used by Jesus or about Jesus and his prayer life simply because he was equal to the Father as the Son of God. So that particular word, eteo, is never used for Jesus because he was equal to the Father. The next phrase of importance is the first phrase, in that day. In that day. Now, there are those who have seen this as a reference to the nation of Israel in the future. I want to just kind of share that with you just so you'll see, you know, that there is another perspective uh, that is believed here. Uh, Those who hold to this understanding link it to the woman in travail in verse 21. And you go back and read it, verse 21, about a woman when she is in travail has sorrow because her hour has come. Those very same words are used prophetically throughout the Old and the New Testament. Excuse me, we know it as a woman that has birth pangs. And the phrase birth pangs has everything to do with the the prophetic uh, uh, issues that are going to happen to the nation of Israel in the future. So they link it to this woman in travail in verse 21 and link that woman to the woman in Revelation chapter 12. And we know that that woman is undoubtedly the nation of Israel. And the chapter itself is preview of the coming great tribulation through which Israel has to pass. So the phrase in that day strengthens this prophetic view because it is used primarily as a prophetic formula and marker that links it to the day of the Lord. Now, let me take you to Isaiah chapter 2 very quickly. We're not going to spend a lot of time here. But in Isaiah chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, it's the first time we see this particular phrase used in prophetic literature. And it is in verses 11 and 12 of Isaiah. And it says, The lofty looks of man shall be humbled, and the haughtiness of men shall be bowed down, And the Lord shall be exalted in that day. So it's pointing to the future. And then it says in verse 12, For the day of the Lord of hosts shall be upon everyone that is proud and lofty, and upon everyone that is lifted up, and he shall be brought low. So in that day that is yet to come, there's going to be judgment upon those who are proud. So if this is a prophetic marker, and by the way, that that phrase in that day is used throughout the Old Testament prophets uh, many, many, many times. So if this is a prophetic marker, then we have a glimpse of Israel after the rapture of the church, appealing directly to the Lord God for help, and not yet using the name of Jesus as the basis uh, for their appeal. And, and, And why is that important? Because here again, they're not calling on the name of the Lord until they see the Lord. And Israel, in the seven years of tribulation, will not see the Lord Jesus until the very end of the seven year period when Jesus comes with the ten thousands of his saints. So Uh, that is the prophetic view of this little passage here. And while it's an interesting view, to say the least, it would be better to consider that Jesus was referring to that time after the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. Because remember that Jesus promised them in verse 22 that he would see them again and he would keep that promise. He was going to see his disciples again. That's why he said, listen, when you see me, man, your heart's going to rejoice. You're in sorrow now, but you're going to see me then, and, then, and your heart's going to rejoice. And then he's going to teach them at that time for those 40 days that he's going to be with them, because he spends 40 days with them after the resurrection, and he teaches them clearly what they need to know in ministering the gospel 
of the kingdom of God on earth. And then he's ascended into heaven and they see him leave. He's with them for a few days and then, boom, he disappears. But now Jesus said, in that day, in other words, in the not too distant future, you will ask me nothing. You will ask me nothing. The day was soon to come when the disciples would stop asking the Lord questions like, Peter, Lord, where are you going? Where are you going? Come on, Lord, tell me, where are you going? I want to go with you. I need to know where you're going. So where are you going? Or like Jude, it asked <clears throat> back in John, in John chapter 12, you know, why, why are you revealing yourself to us and not to the world? Oh, where are you going? <laughs> that kept coming up. And then there was others who would just ask the question, well, why, don't, why don't you just show us the Father? That will be good for us. Just show us the Father. <clears throat> so Jesus said, I won't have to answer those questions anymore. But even though Jesus would be gone, the other comforter, the Holy Spirit of whom he had been telling them, would soon be present. And as we know, Pentecost would result in a marvelous change. They would have all the answers then. They would have all the answers then. At this point, what Jesus used was a formula of his own. One that we've met frequently along our journey through the Gospel of John. You all are familiar with it. It's right there in verse 23. Jesus said, verily, verily, I say unto you. Verily, verily, indeed and in truth. Truthfully, truthfully, I say to you. This phrase actually introduces a new thought to the discourse, which brings us to the use of the word ask, I tell, an inferior asking and addressing a superior. Whatsoever you shall ask the Father in my name, ask and you shall receive that your joy may be full. Ask, and you shall receive, that your joy may be full. God's people are able to make their petitions now directly to the Father. All because Jesus has returned to the Father. You see, Christ's return to the Father, in other words, has restored completely the connection that had been broken by the sin of Adam. And each and every one of us in here was born into sin. We know that from the scriptures. None of us were born good. We were all born in sin. And it was Jesus who was promised in Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman, the anointed one, the, 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 the Messiah, would be coming. For this very purpose, to restore completely the connection that had been broken by the sin of Adam. And what Christ did on our behalf 
restored perfect and complete fellowship with the Father. Allowing us to receive from the Father anything that we ask in the name of his beloved Son. Anything. Oh, well, not just anything. Of course, it would rule out every and all petitions that are incongruent and incompatible with Jesus' character. Right? So we don't just ask anything in Jesus' name and expect it to happen. Asking anything that would only be a blessing to us or maybe even something that's not even right to do, we can't ask those things in Jesus' name because it doesn't fit the character of Jesus. And remember that the scriptures are telling us each and every day that we are daily seeking to be made more and more into the image of Christ in our lives. We grow in maturity in Christ. Well, we're also growing in maturity in the things that we do, in the things that we say, in the things that we even think. So when you consider what Jesus said in John 15, verse 7, when he had said, I am the vine, you are the branches. In verse 7, he says, if you abide in me, which means if you dwell in me, if you dwell in the Christ who has a character as, that is full of righteousness and my words abide in you which are the words of righteousness you shall ask what you will and it shall be done unto you do we ask anything outside of the will and the word of God we can't because it would be incompatible with the character of Jesus but all in all there is a reason to ask. There is a reason for all of us to ask the Father the petitions that we have. And notice what it is in verse 24 of John 16. Hitherto have you asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you shall receive, and here's the reason, that your joy may be full. That your joy may be full. The believer in Jesus Christ should be full of the joy of the Lord. And as we've said many times, when you read Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 10, it tells us there very clearly, the joy of the Lord is our strength. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Well, we want to be full of that joy, certainly. So understand that Jesus had already taught his disciples the revolutionary concept of coming to God and making the requests to him as our father, remember? Pray, he didn't say pray this prayer. He said pray in this manner. Our father, which art in heaven. That was revolutionary. In fact, anytime Jesus talked about the father, the, you know, the Jewish religious leaders got totally upset with Jesus. Who does he think he is? the son of God who do you think you are you know he didn't say that but you know you, you come on Jesus tell him that at least once you know <laughs> but he says this is how you pray and pray in this manner our father because who, what other father is there I mean that question of fatherhood came up didn't it a, a few times <clears throat> excuse me, 
And, and he says, hey, listen, don't call any man father. Not in the very sense of any man being the one who actually gave birth to everyone. It's only one father. The father who created all things and created us. So here was that new concept. But up to now, they hadn't appealed to the Lord in, the, in Jesus' name. That hadn't been taught yet, and that hadn't been done. Now, coming to the Father in the name of Jesus would fill their souls with joy. You add that, that aspect of Jesus into this whole issue of prayer, and now there's joy. Every time that they did so, they would be reminded of him. See, after all of this, after the Spirit comes upon them, after they are able now to, to ask anything that they will in the name of Jesus and according to his will, there was joy. Even when they faced trials. Think about the disciples when, when they were being scrutinized by the Jewish religious leaders again after Pentecost. And in fact, they were persecuted and told, don't, don't use that name of Jesus anymore. And they rejoiced for they, they were worthy to suffer persecution for Jesus. Man, that's joy when you can count all of your troubles as a reason for joy. So every time that they did so, they would be reminded of Jesus and where he was at that moment in time. Where was Jesus when they were going through these things? He was at the right hand of the throne of his father. And what was he being for us there more than anything else? He was our friend. What a friend we have in Jesus. We were reminded of John 15, verses 13 through 17, when Jesus said, Greater love has no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. And Jesus was sitting at the right hand of the Father, having done that, not only for his disciples, but for us. You are my friends, he said, if you do whatsoever I command you. Wow. So that's another reason why we don't ask everything and anything in his name, but that which he commands us. Henceforth, he says, I call you not servants for the servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth but I've called you friends for all things that I have heard of my father I've made known unto you you have not chosen me but I have chosen you and ordained you that you should go and bring forth fruit and that your fruit should remain that whatsoever you shall ask of the father in my name he may give it you. These things I command you, that you love one another. How different are we to be than the world that only loves its own? And we're called to love one another, and we're called to love the ones who hate us and despitefully use us, those who persecute us, and say all manner of evil against us. That can't be done without the Spirit of God in us. And so the resurrection of Jesus Christ reveals all there is about the Father. 
for a very good purpose. Consider, if you will, verses 25 through 27. These things, Jesus said, have I spoken unto you in Proverbs. For the time cometh when I shall no more speak unto you in Proverbs, but I shall show you plainly of the Father. At that day, very close to in that day, at that day you shall ask in my name, and I say not unto you that I will pray the Father for you. For the Father himself loveth you, because you have loved me, and have believed that I came out from God. So in effect, Jesus was saying that the resurrection would reveal plainly all about the Father. It would do these things, and listen very carefully. If you're taking notes, there's a list here. I'll give it to you very slowly and carefully. But the resurrection of Jesus Christ would declare, first of all, God's nature of compassion. It would declare God's nature of compassion, of caring for the welfare of those gripped by sin and death. God knew after the fall in the garden what was yet to come what we would be struggling with as human beings for the rest of, 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 of the millennias that were to follow, knew all along. But he was compassionate to send the seed of the woman who would be his son. The resurrection would declare God's nature of salvation. Second, God's nature of salvation delivering men from the bondage of sin and death. Without the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, what hope would there be? The resurrection would declare God's nature of power, of being able to plan and carry out the plan of salvation by overruling all and by raising the dead. The resurrection of Jesus would declare God's nature of life. Possessing life itself and being able to infuse life into the dead. Which brings to mind Ephesians chapter 2. Where Paul himself talks about the fact that once we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were children of wrath. Children of disobedience. Children led by the prince of the power of the air. But God, who is rich in mercy, even while we were yet sinners, made a way for us through his son. He said, for by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. The resurrection of Jesus Christ declares God's nature of justice as it pertains to his son, because it tells us that he did not allow the one who was, able, who was sinless and perfect to be held by death. He would not allow his only begotten son to be held by sin and death. And therefore he rose from the dead. The just for the unjust. The resurrection of Jesus would declare God's nature of omniscience 
The fact that he is all-knowing, knowing the terrible injustice done to the innocent Son of God, and knowing then how to solve and work the whole scene out for the good of salvation. Every detail, everything that we see in four Gospels, From those various perspectives, yet nonetheless, everything is true. Everything fits perfectly. Every gospel complements the other. And it tells us that God knew how to solve this whole issue by sending his only begotten son. And why? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. All of these things that we have touched upon, the apostle Peter has encapsulated for us in 1 Peter 1, verses 3 through 5, <clears throat> when he writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again, or made us born again, unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you, you who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. So if you kind of want to remember this whole list of things I gave you, just go to 1 Peter 1, verses 3 through 5. Pretty much everything is said right there. But going back to the things that Jesus said in verses 25 and through 27, consider verse 25 when he said, These things have I spoken unto you in Proverbs, but the time cometh when I shall no more speak unto you in Proverbs. No longer would the Lord be speaking to them in what we can call veiled utterances. Utterances that were veiled to some extent, uh, keeping something hidden from them they couldn't understand. And there were so many times that they would listen to Jesus and, and they would kind of do one of these things, but inside they were going, yeah. You ever done that? You know, oh, yes, yes, Lord, yes, Lord. But inside of you, you're going, what? I don't understand that, you know. That's us all the time, isn't it? I mean, at least sometimes, the more we mature, we do a little bit less of this, and we're going, okay. Let me pray about that one, okay. I mean, because even in maturity, we're, we, you know, we're still growing, we're still learning, and still struggling, you know, but, but nonetheless, the Lord's with us, and that's why we can come to him and, and, and trust him. He's not going to be speaking in veiled utterances to his disciples anymore. He will be speaking clearly and plainly about the Father. And let's add one more thought to the resurrection, revealing all there is about the Father. The resurrection of Jesus Christ shows that the Father himself actually loves the believer. Consider that Jesus was saying that he wouldn't have to beg the Father to receive and hear the believer. That is not why we call him the intercessor who sits at the right hand of the Father and says, Oh, Father, oh, Father, please pay attention to these people because they're really messed up. We, we, we need to get a better perspective of what it means for him to be our intercessor. 
We're not going to talk a lot about that right now, but what I'm saying is let's not get the wrong impression about him being our intercessor. Because Jesus isn't, isn't begging his Father to receive and hear us. And even though we know that Jesus is our intercessor before the Father, he doesn't have to intercede or take us to God. He doesn't. Why? Because that's already been proven. That's what we talked about at the very beginning of our study. Jesus opened the door. He opened the veil. He says, come in. Father's waiting for you. Ask him in my name. The Father loves us. And you need to get this. The Father loves us because we love Jesus. Now the question is, do you love Jesus? The Father loves us because we love Jesus and we also believe that he came from the Father. So that was a big issue. That was one of the things that he, also, he struggled with, uh, with, with the, the religious leaders about. Where did where do this guy come from? He said, I came from the Father. Oh, blasphemy, you know. But he said, well, I'm not going to tell you anything that's a, that's a lie. I came from the Father. And guess what? When I finish coming, coming down here from the Father, when I do what I came to do, then I'm going to go back to the Father. Because that's where I came from. But if you want to hear it best, listen to the words of John the Baptist. Turn to John chapter 3 if you will. And these are the words of the forerunner to Jesus. The one who paved that way prophetically. The one spoken of by the prophet Isaiah. John 3, verse 31. John said this, he that cometh from above is above all. Who's he speaking of? Jesus. He that cometh from above is above all. He that is of the earth is earthly and speaketh of the earth. He that cometh from heaven is above all. He that, uh, and what, verse 20, uh, 32, I'm sorry. And what he has seen and heard, that he testifieth. Well, what has he seen and heard? Everything that's in heaven and everything that the Father has said to him. And what he has seen and heard, that he testifies. What did he come and tell us about? The Father. And no man receiveth his testimony. In other words, no man has received that testimony like Jesus received that testimony. He that has received his testimony has said to his seal that God is true. For he whom God has sent speaketh the words of God. For God giveth not the Spirit by measure unto him. In other words, Jesus receives without limit the Holy Spirit. The Father loveth the Son and has given all things into his hand. He that believeth on the Son has everlasting life. I think that's pretty clear. He that believeth on the Son has everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. How clear and how plain 
did John speak these truths? And so in closing, and I know it's early, but I, I'll fill up the time. <laughs> in closing, I go back to Paul's statement in Ephesians chapter 2. Not the statement we referred to the first four verses, but beginning at verse 4. There's something that sticks out really now that sometimes when we read this passage, we don't really focus on it. We don't meditate on this. But notice, if you will, verse 4 of Ephesians 2. But God, who is rich in mercy. Now look at this next phrase. For his great love wherewith he loved us. For his great love wherewith he loved us. We need to meditate more on that than, than we ever have. His great love wherewith he loved us. Why does he love us? Because we love Jesus. Even when we were dead in sins, has quickened us together with Christ. In other words, he's made us alive together with Christ. By grace you are saved and has raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. What a benefit it is for any of us to just love Jesus. And that love is to say, Jesus, you, you, you're at the top of the list in, 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 in who I love. And you're far above the next person, whoever it may be. Even when we were dead in sins, he has quickened us together with Christ. By grace you're saved and has raised us up together, made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. It isn't about what we can do in this life. It isn't about the things that we ourselves can accomplish in this life and then say, look, God should accept me into his kingdom because of all the good things I've done. And it's sad that there are still people today that think that way in the church. But the fact is, our righteousnesses, as we are told in Isaiah 64, our righteousnesses are as filthy rags before the Lord. So Paul says, for by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship. What God does in us, he is doing. He is forming. He is shaping. He is molding. He is strengthening. He is decorating us for his kingdom. We're his poema. P-O-E-M-A is the word for workmanship here. We get the English word poem from it. Great poems are masterpieces of workmanship. Every word in its place. 
The Lord loves us so much that we are his poem. We are his craftsmanship. Created in Christ Jesus unto good works. See, we're not, cre- we're, we're not doing good works to be uh, accepted. But once we are accepted in faith, then he creates us and shows us that he created us for good works. So good works come from our salvation, not toward our salvation, which God has before ordained that we should walk in them. And that brings into mind the eternality of God. Oh, he sees the end from the beginning and the beginning from the end. How he knows every detail about our lives from beginning to end, even before we, even before we had DNA. But that's how much God loves us. And that's why we can understand more clearly now the words, what a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. My prayer is that what we have learned and studied in this passage would encourage us to pray more, would encourage us to do so because we don't want to take the love of God for us for granted. We want to be able to refresh our daily commitment, our daily devotion, our daily dedication to God in prayer. I know that in prayer we want to be heard, but part of prayer is also hearing what God has to say and receiving what he has to give. And I can say that in these last days, he has a lot to give us. He tells us, as Jesus did in Luke 21, keep looking up and lift up your heads for your redemption draweth nigh. I'm coming. I want you ready. Stay ready. Stay in prayer. Stay in fellowship with me. Fellowship with one another. Love one another as I have loved you. Walk in a manner worthy of your calling. If you love me, keep my commandments. Do those things. And I'll walk with you. And talk with you. And hear you. And bless you. Even in the midst of the storms that you'll go through. 
Hey, we all got here today. It was a little rain. There was no storm out there. Just got a little wet. But guess what? That rain dries up really quick, huh? Yeah. So what are we worried about? But if there had been a storm this morning, would we have been here? I think so. Why? Because we love Jesus more than we love anything else in this world. More than we love anything in this whole universe. We need to love Jesus. We need to understand what that means. The way we understand it is look at the cross. Because he loved us first. And he loved us completely.